Well, I feel a little bit superfluous this morning. Pam, you could sing that every Sunday and I'd be all right with it. We have begun a series by looking at Old Testament stories and events from the Old Testament, and we're going to continue today with the subject of original sin. But probably we should begin by asking the question, what is sin? There are many different words in the Bible for sin, but probably the one that is used most often is the word hamartia, which is a word that means to miss the mark. It is a hunting word. It refers to someone shooting at an animal or game, but missing. And so to sin, then, means that we miss the mark, that we do not measure up to God's standard, and God's standard is that of perfection. Some may get closer than others, but none of us measure up. Therefore, the Bible says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Well, where did sin come from? Who is responsible for it? Who do we blame? And the fact is, most of us always want to blame someone else. Someone said the man who can smile when things go wrong has probably thought of somebody he can blame it on. So when it comes to sin or to falling short, we are looking for someone else to blame. For instance, oftentimes we blame our heredity. I am like I am because of my genes. I have fat genes. Therefore, I cannot get into my genes. But that's not my fault. I inherited this. Why is it that I'm angry? Why, why do I have a tendency to be angry? Why do I have a, a tendency to be disgruntled and hard to get along with? Well, because my father was that way, or my mother was that way, or someone else was that way. Therefore, it is not my fault, it's someone else's fault. So we blame heredity. We blame environment. I've talked with people before and asked them about the life that they were living that was destructive. And, and I've had people to say to me, well, when I was a child, my parents took me to church every Sunday. They drug me to church. I was always in church. So I decided when I grew up, I wasn't going to church. And the reason I'm like I am is because my parents made me go to church when I really didn't want to as a child. And then you turn around and see someone else and ask them the same question, and they'll say, my parents never took me to church. When I was a child growing up, we never went. So I was not taught those values and so forth. Therefore, it is not my fault, it's the fault of my parents that I am like I am. We blame society for our condition. We blame our peers. I just got in the wrong group. Well, Adam and Eve couldn't blame either. They had no heredity, so they couldn't blame their genes. They lived in a perfect environment, and so they couldn't blame that either. So let's look at their story. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse number 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Now then, in these verses, we see the origination of sin into the world. We are introduced, first of all, to the tempter, to the one who tempts there in verse number 1. Now the, serpent of the, now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. The word crafty that is used there means skillful, ingenious, guileful, wily. So that is the description here of Satan. Now, there are many different terms that are used to describe Satan, and I think that they show various characteristics of our enemy. For instance, in this verse, he is referred to as a serpent, and that speaks of his craftiness. In fact, the Apostle Paul alluded to that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, when he said, But I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceive Eve by his craftiness. So, whenever we are talking about Satan, the Bible says that he is a serpent, that he is crafty that he is wily, that he is full of guile. When Simon Peter spoke about Satan, he referred to him as a roaring lion. He said in 1 Peter 5, 8, Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, folks, I don't see Satan behind every bush, but he's behind some of them. Are you living your lives understanding that Satan desires to destroy you? That he is like a roaring lion who is ready to attack you when the moment is right? That's what Peter warns us of. He said he's like a roaring lion stalking us, ready to pounce when the time is right. Jesus referred to Satan as a murderer. In John chapter 8, verse 44, he said, You are your father, the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning. Jesus said that he was the evil one. In Matthew 13, 19, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. I know that a lot of times you come to church or you're somewhere and the Spirit of God speaks to your heart. But before the service is over, Satan has snatched it away. That the Holy Spirit has been dealing in your heart about something, and you don't get in the car before it has been snatched away. Jesus said that happens. That's what the evil one does. He snatches that away that God wants to put in your heart. Satan is bold. There is no one that he will not attack or tempt, and certainly we are no match for him. I get concerned sometimes when I hear people flippantly talk about Satan. We are no match for him. Martin Luther said, no man is able to outwit the devil. Now, I've always been perplexed somewhat by Adam and Eve. And you go back and think about the environment in which they lived. Everything was perfect. They had a perfect environment, a perfect relationship to God. Everything was perfect. 
And yet Satan was able to convince them that God was withholding something good. The only thing that God said they could not have was this one, the fruit of this one tree. He said, everything else is yours. Enjoy it. I've created paradise for you. You can have everything else but this one thing. Don't touch that. Don't eat from this. This you're not to touch. And he was able to convince them that God was withholding from them when they had paradise. They had everything. David, the Bible says that King David was a man after God's own heart. David was a man who loved God. And yet his life was a tragedy because Satan was able to tempt him and he yielded to the temptation. When he saw Bathsheba bathing and he was drawn to her and thought that he deserved her. David was tempted and David fell. Simon Peter. Peter was a a member of the inner circle with Jesus. Folks, understand that while Jesus was here on earth, that Peter was always right there with him. He was involved in the ministry. Simon Peter saw the miracles. He heard the message. He was able to spend his time, his life with Jesus. And yet when the time came and Satan attacked him, Simon Peter three times denied that he even knew who the Lord was. I I say that to say, surely he does not consider us beyond temptation. You may think today that, that you are beyond temptation because of your age, because of your commitment, because of something else, but we are not. Satan is a spiritual malignancy who destroys everything that he touches. He destroyed the garden here. God had created paradise, but he turned it into shambles. Satan is destroying families today. I I guess I'm probably as concerned about that as I am anything, the way that families are being destroyed. And we think that somehow we can make up for the destruction, the downfall of the family. We want the teachers to teach better. We want uh, the preachers to preach better. Folks, let me tell you something. The teachers cannot do what you will not do. If you are not willing to invest in your children as parents, the the teachers cannot make up for that. And the family's under attack today. We need to understand that the family is under attack. In fact, I I went to the um, White House website to just look at the agenda there. And perhaps some of you, I would advise you to do it. And whenever I look in there and see that there is a commitment to overthrow DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act. And as I understand that, if that is done, what that means then is that the state no longer has the right to define marriage. And there are so many, so what, 30 states that have that have passed a constitutional amendment to say that marriage is between a husband and a wife. But if these things are overturned, then uh, the state no longer has the right to to define marriage. I I look at everything that is going against the family today. Entertainment. How, How many times do you go to a movie or you watch television and you see a relationship between a man and a woman, but marriage is never a part of it. It's never mentioned. And it's undermining the family. I look at government, it seems to me that there's an undermining of the family. I don't think that it's intentional, but I think that it's what's happening. Satan is destroying the family because we are not building our families on the Word of God anymore and on the things of God. He's destroying our churches doctrinally. 
It concerns me when I see churches, some of them evangelical churches, that no longer believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation. When evangelical churches no longer believe that Satan is real. Our fellowship is being destroyed. Our witness is being compromised. And in a sense, I guess that we could say that because we are getting away from God and the things of God, then Satan is attacking our country. And, and uh, because we have rejected God, then our country is being destroyed by Satan. Folks, that's true morally. That's also true financially. We need to understand that there is a real attack from our enemy. Now, that doesn't mean that we take up arms against each other. It doesn't mean that if you're a Republican, you take up arms against the Democrats. It doesn't mean if you're a Democrat, you take up arms against the Republicans. Because the Bible says that our enemy is spiritual. That we are in a spiritual battle. So we're introduced to the tempter. Then we see the temptation. It hasn't changed through the years. It begins with doubt. Look at verse number 1b. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Doubt always comes in the form of a question. Has God said? Did God say that? Did God say that you're not supposed to eat from this one tree? So there's simply a question. If that's what he said, did he really mean that? Now, folks, here's the thing. When we begin to doubt the Word of God... Then we become vulnerable to temptation. When you begin to doubt what God says, then you open yourself up to deception. Look at verse number 4. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He said, No, you won't die. You won't. You'll be like God. If you disobey God, then you'll be like God. And now he created a desire. So there was doubt. She's vulnerable to deception. And now she desires what's being offered. Look at verse number 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. As I read this passage of Scripture, I was astounded by how complete the temptation was. Physically, it's good for food. Sensually, it's a delight to the eyes. Intellectually, it'll make you wise. Satan covers his bases, doesn't he? I mean, he knows how to tempt. And so he appealed to her physically, sensually, and also intellectually. So she made a decision there in verse number 6. She took from his fruit and ate, and she gave to her husband. So she entertained the doubts. She was vulnerable to deception. She decide, desired what was offered, and she made a decision to accept it. And so sin came. That's the origination. The progression of sin. Sin starts innocently, but it does not stay that way. Is that not correct? It starts innocently, but it does not stay that way. I've read so many times, it used to confuse me. It doesn't anymore because of the conclusion I came to. But it used to confuse me when I read in the Bible that Jesus was tempted in all ways such as we, and yet without sin. And I thought, well, now how could that be? 
Jesus was tempted in all ways such as we, and yet without sin. How could Jesus be tempted in all the ways that I've been tempted, or you've been tempted? Was he tempted to speed? No, his camels were not that fast. So, what does it mean when it says that he was tempted in all ways such as we, and yet without sin? I believe that there are three avenues through which all sin comes. That when you are tempted, it is going to be in these three avenues. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, there are three avenues of temptation that are mentioned there. I believe that all temptation comes through these three avenues. First of all, the lust of the eyes. In other words, temptation comes through what we see. We see that with, with Eve in verse number 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good. Now, when Jesus was tempted on the Mount of Temptation, he was tempted in these three avenues. All three of these avenues he was tempted. First of all, what you see. The Bible says in Matthew 4, verses 8 and 9, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things will I give you if you fall down and worship me. In other words, it began with what you see. You see, Satan took Jesus. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus, are you impressed? Do you see all of this? I'll give it to you if you'll worship me. Temptation comes through what we see. Temptation also comes to us through what we see. Therefore, we need to be aware of that whenever we choose the magazines we read. The television programs we watch, we need to understand that temptation comes through our eyes, through what we see. In fact, I went to the Internet and, and uh, it says that in our country, every second, we spend $3,075 on pornography. Every second in our country. 28,258 are viewing Internet pornography right now. While we're here. In America, we spend $18.33 billion annually on pornography. And folks, it's eating our souls. It is eating our souls away. Through what we see, the lust of the eyes. Satan tempts us through what we see. And then he says, the lust of the flesh. We desire what we see. Look again in verse number 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she saw that it was good for food. Now, the temptation here is to satisfy the flesh. You're hungry? Satisfy the flesh. That was also the temptation of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, verse number 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now then you know that Jesus had been fasting. He was hungry. So the temptation that came to Jesus was satisfy your hunger, which it was not appropriate at that time. But the temptation was to satisfy the flesh. And that's the temptation that comes to us. Satisfy the flesh. You know, the Lord has given, here's the struggle I think that we have. The Lord has given us certain natural desires. 
when we, when we act on them naturally, it's a good thing. When we pervert them, it's a bad thing. For instance, sex, that's a good thing. We would not be here without it. It is necessary. When it's perverted, then it becomes impurity. Hunger, hunger's a good thing because we have to have food to be nourished. But when we pervert it, it becomes gluttony. Rest, rest is a good thing. We need to rest, but when we pervert it, then it becomes laziness. So there is the lust of the flesh. Satisfy the flesh. Thirdly is the pride of life. Verse number six again, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and gave to her husband. The pride was that she would become like God. If you eat of this, then you're going to become like God. And the Bible says, so she took it, she ate, and she gave it to her husband. She was tempted through pride, and so was Jesus. Going back to his temptation in Matthew 4, verses 5 and 6, Then the devil took him into the holy city, and he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written... He will give his angels charge concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, the temptation there was a temptation of pride. What an entrance! Satan said to Jesus, now just think of the entrance that you would make. If you just jump off this, the Bible says that the angels will catch you, and uh, it's going to be quite an entrance if you do that. And so there was the temptation of pride. We also are tempted by the pride of life. I want what I see, I need what I want for my life to be better, and I deserve what I want. So, I think that in the progression of sin, there are three avenues through which all temptation comes. There's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Then we see the condemnation of sin. It is condemned, ladies and gentlemen, because it's hurtful to man, and it's disobedient to God. You know, sin never provides what it promises, does it? It never provides what it promises. Well, what does it provide? When we give ourselves to sin, what does it provide? Well, first of all, death. Look at verse number 3. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. Verse number 19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust... You shall return. Folks, the consequence of sin is always death. Spiritually, emotionally, eventually, physically, it's always death. With sin, innocence dies. You look at verse 7, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, made themselves loin coverings. When, when sin comes into our life, then innocence dies. Now, that's... Um, one of the things that I love, I love children, I love young people. Um, one of the things that I enjoy about them is their innocence. They have such an innocence about them. And one of the things that breaks my heart is whenever I see them fall into sin and innocence is gone. You know, there are some of these kids here in our church that I've known since they were born. A lot of them I've known since they were born. And such precious, innocent boys and girls. And yet when sin comes, innocence dies. 
Another thing I like about young people is their idealism. They're so idealistic. It'll drive you nuts, but they're very idealistic. But sin destroys that. I've, I've seen so many of them whenever they, they begin. They're so idealistic about things, and then sin comes in, and, and their idealism dies. The will dies. We begin sinning because we choose to. We continue sinning because we have to. And ultimately, the soul dies. The wages of sin is death. And so the soul dies ultimately. So what does it bring? Death. That's what sin brings. It brings death. It brings fear. Fear of God. You'll look there in verse number 9. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. Adam and Eve had never been fearful of God before, but they are now because sin has come into their life. And now then, rather than seek God out for fellowship, they are hiding from him because they are fearful. Fear of God, fear of being caught. My guess is, and I, I don't know anything, so <laughs> I'm not making any judgments on it, but my guess is there are some of you who are living your lives in fear of being found out. That there's something in your life that no one knows, perhaps no one knows. Perhaps your spouse does not know. But it's there, and so you live your life in fear because you're scared you're going to be found out. Folks, that's what sin does. It turns our faith to fear. It steals our joy. And so now we live in fear and guilt. For the first time in Adam and Eve's life, they knew guilt because that's what sin brings. There are those people who like to point at the church and say the church and the Bible and all of that religion. It just gets you, it causes you to feel guilty. No, folks, that's not right. We feel guilty because we're guilty. And so for the first time, Adam and Eve felt guilt because they were guilty. There's the condemnation of sin. What does it bring? It brings death. It brings fear. And it brings guilt. Well, is there a remedy? Yep, to close up, let me just mention what the remedy is. See, man has his own remedy, all right? We've fallen, so forth. Man has his own remedy as to how he's going to fix things and make himself right with God. Look at verse number 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. To me, the fig leaves represent religion. It's man's attempt to make himself right with God. And that's what religion is. It is man's attempt to make himself right with God. That was the Pharisees. So there is uh, the cover-up. We do it with morality. We do it with religion. If I just live a moral life, then I'll be all right. You know, if I just am more moral than the person next to me, then I'm going to be okay. So that is man's attempt to make himself right. God has a remedy. Look at verse number 21. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife. And clothed him. You know what God's remedy was for Adam and Eve? The blood of a lamb had to be slain. The lamb was slain. And God took the skin from the lamb and made him clothes. That's the reason that Jesus is the Lamb of God. He is the Lamb who shed his blood on Calvary that we might be right with God. But that's the only way, folks, that we can be right with God is through Jesus who shed his blood to provide us what is needed to be right with God. 
Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. My prayer for you today is that you do not live another day without the forgiveness of Jesus. He is totally willing to forgive you if you're willing to let him. Don't live another day without his forgiveness. Our Father in God, we come to a time of invitation, and I lift up these to you. Father, you know our hearts. Nothing is secret. Nothing is hidden. We cannot substitute religion or morality. We can't blame someone else. We all stand naked before you. And Lord, I pray today for those who need your forgiveness that they will receive it. We thank you for your provision. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, we're going to stand. The choir's going to sing a hymn of invitation. The invitation is if you have not received God's forgiveness through Christ that you do. If you're looking for a church, all my doors open to you. We'd love to have you as a part of this family. Stand with me, please, as we stand, the choir sings, and as they do, you come, I'll greet you as you do.